Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church. Whenever you read an epistle, know that it was written for a particular purpose to correct something, to clarify doctrine. And so what we have here in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11, is the discussion about straightening out the doctrine that was all messed up at Ephesus. Paul is telling Timothy, go there and instruct certain people not to teach because the doctrine is messed up, therefore so is their practice, as we'll talk about in a few moments. I can see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life Every giant will fall The mountains will move Every chain of the past You've broken in two All the fear of the lies We're singing the truth That nothing is impossible with you Well, hello and welcome to today's edition of the Grace to Live radio broadcast with Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so grateful that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the program. And as always, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's edition of Grace to Live, we are continuing with Pastor Keith's series entitled Church Matters. So if you have your Bibles... Please turn with us today to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study. Today's message is entitled, Church Unlike the World, Part 1, Making a Countercultural Statement, and it's all about corporate worship, the worship service, how to conduct the worship service. And that reminds me, as I was preparing for this message, that Ministry can be a struggle. Ministry is not easy. People ask tough questions. And as an elder, a pastor, I have to give the answers that are found in God's Word. I don't have a choice. I can't make up answers that would make people feel good or that the the type of answer that people would like to hear or wish that the text said. I have to say what the text says. I have to say what the Bible says. That's an elder's calling. And a pastor and an elder are virtually the same thing. Which brings me to some difficult situations I've faced in ministry, some more than others, because people ask tough questions and they want clear answers. And the first one I want to share with you just happened not that long ago. Terry and I went to visit two friends of ours who love us, who we love. We walked down to their place and we observed the social distancing like we're supposed to. And we were talking and my friend said to me, you know, I've been praying for you. I've been concerned about you. And I said, oh, really, what do you mean? And he goes, well, watching last week and watching the video on the reopening of the church, I could see that you're not doing well. Your, your, your color wasn't good. You, you, you seemed tired and exhausted looking. And I've just been concerned about you. Is there a problem? And with that question, I thought, I looked him in the eye, I thought for a moment because the answer I was going to give him was difficult, difficult to give. I wasn't sure how he'd receive it. I wasn't sure how he and his wife, let alone my wife, would feel about what I was about to say. 
And I had to confess. In fact, there was a problem, a physical problem. And so I looked at him in love and trying to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. And I said, there is a problem. I said, you know, a lot of people can't tell sitting in the worship center with me up in the platform and them in the audience, but there is a problem, and it's this. I have a face that is made for radio. I'm, I'm not great to look at, and the fact of the matter is that the problem is that most people can't tell when you're in that big worship center, but here on camera like this, you get to see it all, and I'm... I'm in the best shape of the last five or ten years. All of it's good. It's just you only have so much to work with and you're stuck with me. And those kind of problems are fun because, you know, everybody had a good laugh and this, that, and the other. But other times you get asked really, really difficult questions, questions that require great thought and, and great care and great kindness. One comes to mind in particular. And that was, I, not as a pastor, but in the role of pastor, but I attended a funeral of an unbelieving man. And he had uh, contracted a disease and died from complications of a sexually transmitted disease. And uh, he was an unbeliever. He made no bones about it. Uh, And after everything had died down at the funeral, uh, his mother came to me. And knowing that I was a Christian man, knowing that I knew a little bit something about the Bible, you might say, uh, she asked me, because she herself was a professing Christian, although I wasn't sure just where she stood, in terms of eternity and her understanding of the gospel. And so she looked at me and she said, Keith, where did my son end up? And I looked into her eyes and it was difficult. I could see the anguish and the anxiety there. I knew this man well. I'd known him all my life. We had been roommates for a time uh, in between my sophomore and junior year and my junior and senior year. The summers, summer jobs, I had summer jobs and he and I roomed together and we were very, very close and uh, I had later in life shared the gospel with him, but he had rejected it, sometimes mockingly, sometimes in, some of, in the most worst imaginable terms possible. And so I could not tell her that I thought that everything was okay and that he was in a better place. And so as I formulated my answer, I asked myself the question, will I ever be welcomed in her home again? Because I loved her too. And so I looked at her, And I told her that her son and my older brother, as far as I could tell, was in a Christless, uh, graceless eternity, having rejected God's gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. I wanted to be full of grace and truth. It was a hard thing to say, but I had to tell the truth. I spoke the truth in love. And I watched as the answer sort of sunk in, and I could tell by her response that she had already come to that conclusion on her own, but maybe hoped that I would say something different. But I couldn't. I couldn't. And that was a difficult situation because sometimes when you give a straight answer, people don't receive it very well. They don't receive it well at all. That's why ministry is so difficult for pastors, for elders, for leaders in the church. Because the Bible says what the Bible says, and we don't get to play fast and loose with the text. And that's why Timothy was told by the Apostle Paul that he had to fight the good fight. As we think about our passage today, our passage really is an extension of 1 Timothy 1, which is all about doctrine. It gets into practice. And our calling as me as an elder, as a pastor, 
And you as Christ followers is to follow the text wherever it goes. And sometimes it leads us into tough places. Another thing that comes to mind is a, an event that took place. I was at a company cocktail party over 20 years ago when I was still in the business wor- world. And my boss, he was the vice president that I reported to, summoned me over to a group of people standing there. And he knew I was a believer in everything. And he said, and as I walked up, he said, here comes my torpedo. Here comes my ringer. He knows the Bible inside and out. And he'll set you straight. So I braced myself for what might be said. And he said, Keith, this man right here, this man says that if I die without a relationship with Jesus Christ, then I'm going to go to hell. What do you say? And I remember just taking it all in, thinking, boy, what next? And I said to him, well, I don't say that. Jesus says that, and he's God, and the Bible is his word, and so I believe that. And as those words sunk in, you could see the color drain from his face. You could see the veins in his throat stand up, and his anger was palpable, and he stormed out of the room in a fit of anger. You just never know how this is going to go. Now, the good news is sometimes people receive what you have to say. Sometimes they reject it. Uh, Sometimes they listen and are offended, but then it sinks in and the spirit of God working in the heart of the people of God enables them to grasp and embrace the word of God. And in those two cases, those last two cases that I gave you, uh, in the end, they turned out well. Uh, My mother, within a few months, made a public, made a profession of faith in Christ and was later baptized. And that VP, I saw him years later and he shared with me that in the ensuing years he had become a Christian. But it doesn't always go that way. And so you never know what's going to happen. Sometimes people grow in grace. Sometimes you never see or hear from them again. Which brings us to today's passage and today's discussion of a church unlike the world being countercultural. Uh, our passage today, I'm going to read a big slice of scripture here to set up the context and the flow of the discourse. And so work with me here. But our passage is 1 Timothy 1.18, all of chapter 2, and the first parts of chapter 3. So let's start in 1 Timothy 1.18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the pro- prophecy previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare, you may fight the good fight, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Chapter 2. First of all then, in light of all that came before, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving Be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men 
should pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. A better word would be dissension there. Likewise, and in, in the same, same thought, I desire that in every place, I inserted it there for clarity, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. And self-control speaks to mindfulness there. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved, kept is a better word, preserved, through childbearing if they continue in faith and in love and holiness with self-control. Chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Moving on to verse 8. Deacons likewise must be, verse 12, the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. When you read the pastoral epistles, one of the things you have to realize is they are written for a particular purpose, and that is to address church matters. Whenever you read an epistle, whether it's a Pauline epistle or an epistle by Peter, know that it was written for a particular purpose to correct something, to clarify doctrine, something of that nature. And so what we have here in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11, is the discussion about straightening out the doctrine that was all messed up there at Ephesus. Paul is telling Timothy, go there and instruct certain people not to teach because the doctrine is messed up, therefore so is their practice, as we'll talk about in a few moments. You see this theme again in chapter 4, where Paul is dealing with Gnosticism in its earlier forms, and he talks about people who, who forbid marriage, whose consciences are seared, and who teach things they should not teach. And he reminds them that everything created by God is good and is to be enjoyed and made holy by the word of God in prayer. This pops up again in 2 Timothy 2.15. Some would say the Oana verse, to show yourself a workman approved, rightly dividing the word of truth, and again, it's talking about some of the doctrinal issues there that affected the lives and practice of the people. And so what we have here is Paul writing to Timothy, eager to refute the bad teaching and the bad practices and to vaccinate the congregation, the assembly there, the people, against further attacks by false teachers and people who were teaching something other than the truth. And so Paul called upon Timothy to fight the good fight. See, there's no way around that task. Timothy would have to confront things head on. And Paul wanted him to go there and to refute false teachers, to teach the truth of the gospel, to ensure proper conduct in the worship assembly, to select qualified church leaders, to promote godly behavior and motives on the part of both the leaders and the so-called laity, and to basically lay out the blueprint for the church, for them and for all of us as well. And that's why Paul writes, I write these things so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. This was no small task. This was a tall order. 
and Timothy had to be up for the task. Ephesus was a tough place. He was a young man. It was a major city. One of the seven wonders of the world was there. An eminent city filled with eminent people, some of whom were in the church, some of whom were people of stature that a young man in his 30s would find it difficult to contend with. But that's what Timothy was called to do. And after chapter one, it's all about practice. It's all about living out our faith. It's about worshiping God in a way that pleases God. Worship is how we conform ourselves to God's will. Now, last week, Pastor Chris broke down verses one through eight in chapter two. And we're gonna be in chapter two today. And then uh, he also, last week, talked about the greatest act that you can do by asking God to act. And I think he gave us a wonderful teaching on prayer. Today, we take on how to act when we worship God in the public worship service. And what I'd like to do is to look at the universal principles for worship that are contained in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Today, we're going to confine our discussion really to verses 8 through 10, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I want to read those to you now, and then we'll get into uh, three realities that we need to embrace so that we can worship God the way he wants to be worshiped in the public service. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling, dissension. Likewise, and I desire that in every place, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul is addressing some of the issues in the worship there at, at Ephesus, and he wants Timothy to correct it. Sometimes, sometimes we get caught up in the outward trappings of worship. You have to remember that Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis. The Romans called her Diana. She was a uh, uh, she had to do with fertility, and the Greco-Roman worship was very ostentatious. The priests doing their thing and in all these incredible robes and acting out and just bigger than life. And then the, the vestal virgins and some would say temple prostitutes attired in all kinds of wild robes, dressed up, lots of makeup and jewelry. It was a show. But church isn't about the show, it's about the grow. And so we have here... Paul's vaccination, Paul's inoculation for that. And what it is here, there are three realities about corporate worship that we need to know so that we can prepare to worship God in the public worship service. And I'm going to give you all three right now. Public worship, it's all about the internals, not the externals. Two, it's all about witness, not excess. And three, it's all about obedience, not preference. And what we're going to get to today only is reality number one. And we'll catch the other two uh, realities next week. Reality number one, realize corporate worship, like all worship, is about the internals and not the externals. Again, we talked about Roman and Greek pagan worship and all this pageantry and drama and costumes and everything. But that's not what the church is about. Church is not supposed to be like the world. It's supposed to be unlike the world. And the church is supposed to make a countercultural statement to the surrounding culture. We're to look different. We're not to blend in. We're to stand out by how different we are. And so Paul writes in verses 8 through 10 these words. I want to read them again. 
I desire then that in every place, every church, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, without dissension. Likewise, and again in invisible ink, I desire that in every place also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. They are to adorn themselves, it says, with good works. Now, what's going on here? Well, we have similar problems today. So many of the worship services are more like performance art than they are about the worship of the one true God. Those responsible for leading worship, the men responsible for leading the public prayer, should do so with a right heart, more so than a right pose or a right posture. This right heart, this good conscience, this sincere faith is a constant theme that is woven through chapter 1 and indeed through the rest of the pastoral epistles. Let me give you some examples. Yeah, 1 Timothy 1.5. Look at the phrase, a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience. This is all internals. 1 Timothy 2.8, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then 1 Timothy 3.9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear or cleansed conscience. And then the, the, the opposite in uh, 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about men through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And what we see here, it's all about the internals. It's all about the heart of worship. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 15. He talked about it's not what goes into the people's mouths. They were talking about being ceremonially unclean or defiled. But look what he says in Matthew 15, 18 through 20. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. There is the internal again. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Matthew 15, 18 through 20. Which brings us back, really, to verse 8 where it talks about holy hands. What's all this stuff about holy hands? What does that mean? Holy hands speak to the consecration of the heart. It speaks to a heart consecrated to God, set apart to God, dedicated to God, God-focused. It's an outward expression of an inward condition or situation. The men leading public worship were not to, they were to come prepared. They weren't just to show up and say, let's pray. They were to come prepared with a cleansed heart, with a clean conscience, with a, with a mindset given over to God. And then they were to engage in the public worship service. This has been a pattern throughout the Old Testament and the New. In fact, when King Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8.22, we see this stretching out of hands, holy hands. 1 Kings 8.22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of God in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. Do you think he just showed up and said, let us pray? Or do you think he was ready to go spiritually before he got up there? Do you think his heart was in the right place? The Psalm, Psalm 141 and Psalm 143, you see this. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice.
Pastor Keith Crosby with today's Grace to Live radio broadcast. We are so grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with us today here on the program. And if you have questions about today's show, or if you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Keith, then I would encourage you to visit our website, hillsidechurch.org. There you can listen to past sermons and other content from Pastor Keith just by clicking the Sermon Archive tab. And you can also find links to Pastor Keith's blog, as well as the Out of My Mind podcast. The website is also a great place to connect with us here at Hillside. You can find information on our service times, ministry opportunities, and of course you can browse our calendar of upcoming events. Again, all this and much, much more can be found by visiting our website, hillsidechurch.org. Well, we hope that you'll join us again next time on Grace to Live. But until then, I'm your host, Kevin Reeves, and on behalf of Pastor Keith and everyone here at Hillside Church, it is our prayer that the Lord will richly bless you, and thanks for listening. Amen.